The following podcast is a Dear Media production. As a parent, do you ever wish someone could just whisper some realistic and trustworthy support in your ear and not make you feel awful for not having all the answers? Well, that's what I'm here for. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, developmental psychologist, parent educator, clinical professor, and I'm a mom. My goal is to make your parenting journey less overwhelming and a lot more joyful. Please join me every Friday for new episodes of Raising Good Humans. Hi, I'm Mariana, and welcome back to the Life with Mariana podcast. In addition to being a podcast host, I'm also a brand founder, and having our own brand, we eventually decided the time was right for us to get an investor. But what does that really mean, and what does this process really look like? Well, along the way, we met Kelly Dill. Kelly is a principal at Imaginary Ventures, and they've invested in so many brands that I love, including Bread Beauty Supply, Glossier, Good American, Kosas, Majuri, and Skims, just to name a few. Because their brands resonate with me so well as a consumer, but also as a business owner, I wanted to have Kelly tell you more about what it means to take on an investment, what you need to have in order before pitching yourself, and some business metrics to keep in mind. And before we get into the episode, be sure to subscribe to my podcast. I have new episodes every Tuesday. And if you're loving it, leave me a rating and review. Now let's hear from Kelly. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So your official title is principal at Imaginary Ventures. What is a principal? Yes. So a principal is a, is a fancy word for an investor. So sort of overseeing everything from finding new investments to managing the portfolio to doing investor relations to sort of running the gamut of, of anything and everything that has to do with investing. And then tell us a little bit about Imaginary Ventures. Imaginary is a consumer-focused venture fund. So we do all things consumer. That could be brand, product, platform, marketplace, you know, a B2B business that powers a brand like a, a retail platform or a supply chain platform. So it doesn't have to be a brand or a product. It could be a, a B2B business. But I'm if, if you take a look at our website, you'll see that we're a part of a bunch of cool brands and products as well. But really focusing on anything consumer touching. And then within that, sort of focusing mostly on early stage stuff. So and, I, and I'm not sure if your audience is familiar with some of these terms, so I'm happy to answer any questions you might have. But sort of early stage, meaning anything from sort of pre-launch to call it Series B, and then opportunistically doing some later stage stuff as well. And then how did you get into your current role? Yeah, it's a great question. So I knew since I sort of graduated that I, I loved consumer and I loved um, and I wanted to do early stage investing. So I started out doing M&A at an investment bank. And so after some time there, I was like, okay, I know I want to do early stage investing. What's the best sort of path towards that? And I wanted to be an active investor. So I really wanted to help entrepreneurs build and grow their companies. I wanted to get in early and I wanted to you know, get to be involved. And so I thought I should get some operating experience in order to sort of relate to entrepreneurs on a deeper level. So post-banking, I spent some time at Uber and then I joined Glossier. And then after spending a few years at Glossier, Venture's very opportunistic. So I sort of started thinking about early stage investing again. And it was very serendipitous connections. It's always a small world. And I joined Imaginary, call it three and a half years ago. And so that was kind of my path towards investing, sort of 
always knowing that I wanted to do early stage investing within consumer, but going sort of an operating to investing route. I think that portion of your career is really important because as a brand, you know, when we're looking to partner with people or speaking with people, having that experience of knowing what it's like on the brand side is so important because it's important to know that the person you're working with knows the insides of the brand, because it's easy to tell someone how to do something. But once you've actually like walked the walk and you've been on the brand side, you just know it a lot better. I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It still is the most invaluable experience. And I'm so thankful for those experiences. And it's the things that you wouldn't think about, right? It's like, as an investor, you'll see some investors who might not have been on the operating side be like, I don't know, why don't you just launch this product tomorrow? You know, because, you know, and you're like, dude, it takes a lot of work to do that. We've got it. We've got teams, we've got, you know, supply chain, we've got to go through tech, you know, there's 10 things on that list that our product managers have to go through. And so you understand the complexity of what it takes to launch a product or do launch international or whatever it might be. And then, you know, then there are the softer things of like, these are, these are human beings, right? These are, these are, these are companies made up of human beings. They have lives. They go home to their families or their friends or significant others or to no one. And I think understanding like the dynamics of team and culture and things like that and being a part of that and understanding how important that is, is really hard as an investor having, if you've never been a part of it. So having been a part of it, I think there are the things like launching a product and then there are the softer things like culture and team dynamics that are really important. Those are super important. And then for people that don't know, because there's so many different ways to raise money, what exactly is a venture capital fund? Great question, right? So like you said, there are different ways to get capital for your business. And there's no such thing as a free launch. So venture capital is not free money, which is a, you know, might be a common misconception when you you see it thrown around. A venture capital fund, we also have investors. And so we take on money from investors and we return money to those investors. With the capital that we raise, we then invest in companies like yours or like other brands. And then, you know, when they exit, it could be an IPO, it could be a sale, they return money to the venture capital fund. And then the venture capital fund then returns money to their limited partners. That seems complicated, but in a nutshell, it's a vehicle to, you know, distribute money, but it's money that, you know, with the intent of getting more money back. Yeah, exactly. Because I think that's definitely a common misconception that when people are raising money or getting investments or whatever the scenario may be, that it's free money and that you just get to like use it in your company. But whoever gave you that money needs some sort of return and like some sort of multiple on that return that they need to get back um, to show that their money was like, you know, actually doing something. And so if people don't go the venture capital route and then maybe needing like a smaller amount of money, what other ways are there for people? It's like friends and family, pre-seed, all of the above. I think you, the first thing to say is that not every company needs venture money. And there's a difference between getting money and getting venture money. So the expectations change. So you might have a great profitable business. Like let's say you're selling hair scrunchies, okay? You're selling hair scrunchies on Etsy and you're for every you know dollar you sell, you make 10 cents. Let's just pretend. At the end of the day, after cost of goods and everything. And you can just keep that going. That's a great business. As soon as you take on venture money, you're not able to just keep growing that business at a, you know, small annual growth rate. The expectations change. 
So you need to, you know, multiply that business by more than you would had you not taken the capital. So I think it's something for entrepreneurs, especially with smaller companies to understand is that you don't always need venture money because with venture money comes certain expectations. You can't just keep growing and keep doing the same thing and like have a cushion. The expectation is that you're then going to sort of hit a stepping stone and change the business and and return capital quicker. So I think before even thinking about raising money, it's do you need money or do you have a great business that you can grow at a steady growth rate and create a great lifestyle for yourself and support yourself without needing to take on extra capital? Exactly. <laughs> and I think that's, and I think like that's overlooked a lot because I think that there are plenty of businesses that can do that. And I think it's awesome. Like it's a great, it's a great thing to do. And then, Hey, maybe you, you take the next three years, you bootstrap the business. Bootstrap is just another word for saying like you don't take on any external capital. And then in three years, you're in a position to then say, okay, do I want to make a step change in this business? If I took on a million dollars, could I turn that into $5 million? And I think like getting to a later stage and being able to sort of answer that question is also a good idea. The later you go in raising capital, likely the less equity or ownership you have to give up. Do you ever feel like you need to take a chill pill? If you said yes, please, then try Zen Fuel's chill pill supplement, Zen Chill. With two capsules a day, you can finally get the support you need to get calm and carry on. Zen Fuel uses extracts that not only make you calm, but boost focus with traditional Ayurvedic herbs such as ashwagandha, water hyssop, and the intellect tree. And what's so cool about Zen Fuel is they're all about being a holistic wellness brand that focuses on radical transparency from farm to bottle and helping people with a more balanced life. And for the days that you need a boost of energy, try Zen Fuel's Zencest Energy Supplement. And if you're trying to cut back on caffeine, this one in particular has a potent amount of green bean coffee extract, which enhances mental clarity, mood, and focus. I love that their ingredients contain zero additives and Zenfuel's founder traveled the world sourcing the most potent Ayurvedic ingredients to ensure each supplement is packed with ingredients that do what they say they'll do with zero fluff and 100% plant-based. So between running our beauty line and my podcast and being an influencer, I guess you can say I'm overwhelmed at times and the last year definitely did a number on my stress levels. So if you're stressed too, I get it, but there's something that you can take and you can add to your toolbox for the days when you need a little bit of help. So try Zen Chill in the afternoon. Zenfuel also has their well-known sleep supplement, Zen Sono, and I'm really excited to try that one next. Zenfuel is giving you 25% off your first purchase using the code Mariana at checkout. Just go to Zenfuel, that's Z-E-N-F-U-E-L.com at checkout and use code Mariana for 25% off. That's Zenfuel.com, Z-E-N-F-U-E-L, and Mariana for 25% off. Now let's get back to the episode. What is evaluation and how do you calculate this number and why is it important? There are plenty of different ways to calculate evaluation, but I'll start at the beginning and say that let's say you're a pre-launch company, you don't have revenue, we can't really do a revenue multiple. So revenue multiple would be if you're doing $10 million a year in revenue and I value your business at $50 million, that's a five times revenue multiple, okay? But if you're a pre-launch business, like I'm sure many of your listeners are thinking about starting a business, that's not possible because you don't have revenue yet. And so at that stage, there are a couple of things to think about when thinking about evaluation. And they range on industry stage where you are in pre-launch. But I think the thing to think about from an investing side is like, 
at that stage, you're taking on a much larger risk, right? If you're doing $0 in revenue and you're starting, let's go back to the scrunchie business and you don't, it's just an idea and you're going to change the world with these scrunchies. Like I have to believe in you. I'm really making a bet on you and the idea and the market size and the business model versus anything concrete. And so because of that, I'm going to give you a lower valuation likely than if you were doing $10 million a year. One, I'm taking on more risk. So I want to own more of the company. So I get more of the upside. So if you, you know, the risk for me as a venture investor is much higher if you are pre-launched and haven't done any revenue than if you have launched a company and are doing revenue. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And then when you're thinking about, about raising money and valuation, it is then better. I mean, in my personal opinion that you wait a little bit if you can bootstrap and use your own savings to get your business off the ground. Because if you even wait like a year, maybe your valuation will then be, you know, based on actual revenue and sales. And so you can get a better deal and an accurate valuation. I think it definitely makes sense for a lot of industries and a lot of companies. Some, if you're doing something that's deep in tech and you need to hire and you need to build out, you know, some sort of tech infrastructure or you need more money. You, know, <laughs> you need more money. So I think it, it's, it, it, it varies, but I think you're absolutely right. If you can prove product market fit on your own, I also think like as an investor, that's so capital as an investor, even though we're giving you capital, we love capital efficiency, right? Like we want to give you capital and know that you're not just going to blow it. And so if you spent the first year being really diligent at how you've used your own capital or the limited resources you have and been able to turn that million into 5 million that you invest personally or you know you know $10,000 into $100,000 that you invest personally like that's really exciting to an investor because the best predictor of the you know future is the past like that that shows a really diligent and capital efficient entrepreneur and that's something all investors love to see. And then we're talking about, you know, investing. So then people invest and they either do a minority percentage or a majority. When you speak yes. about minority, what percentage are you typically talking about? And the majority same. So a minority technically is anything under 50%, right? So at Imaginary, we're looking usually to take, call it between 10 and 20% of a company. So when we invest, we want to then own 10 to 20% of a company. A majority investor, so a private equity investor, likely is owning over 50%. And so they're more focused on ownership. So they're going to be, you know, either a lot of times this comes with restructuring. So maybe they'll change the C suite or they'll really change operations. Whereas a venture investor is making many more investments that are likely smaller check sizes for lower ownership. Um, but they're but they're not necessarily operating the companies. And is there a point when people go from, you know, maybe needing to raise money with a VC versus when you do go to a private equity? So I think it depends on what, yes, there are different stages. And so, and there are also different stages of venture. So later in your life cycle, so when you're an older company doing more revenue, you'll be looking more towards like growth venture, which borderlines on like, you know, private equity as well. So it's definitely more for a later stage company and or a company who really wants somebody to help them operate. So they, you know, they might go to a, a, a PE partner to own a majority percentage because they, they're not as interested in, you know, running the company necessarily and they want sort of help operating. I will say like when we started going through this process for Summer Fridays, this is after we launched, 
there were so many like words and acronyms going around that Lauren and I would be on calls and we were just, it was like fake it till you make it. We're like Googling things. We're like, what does this mean? And we were what like, is EBITDA? yeah, we're <laughs> like, what, what is all of this? And then everyone uses these terms, but I think this is so helpful. So I think that's really great background to now go into speaking about your portfolio and really what the process looks like. So if people are looking to raise money or, you know, go out to venture capital or whoever it might be, what could be helpful to them? So first, Imaginary has so many well-known brands, which is why I wanted you to come on because Glossier, Skims, um, Good American are just a few of the many that I love. So obviously these are so well-known, especially like for me and like my own shopping cart of like what I buy online. So what- <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> I like truly like love the brands in your portfolio. So what stood out about them to you? Because I do think there is something so similar about, about them within the portfolio because they're all so special. I first, thank you so much. It never gets old hearing that. I, I love all of them as well. They're all like your babies and, and there's a, you know, you're in love with all of them. So I, I love hearing that. I think what you're speaking to, and this is not going to be a venture capital term. So bear with me, but that in the brands that you named and, and what I like to see in our portfolios, there's a magic and that's sort of the undescribable. And I would say summer Fridays has that too. Like there is a magic in what they're doing. And it's that special thing that you can't quite uh, put your finger on. If I had to sum it up, like for the brands that you named and the brands in our portfolio, what I'm looking for is like, and this is not helpful at all because people listening are like, well, what do I, how do I get the magic? And it's like, is the magic. But I think beyond that, like the other thing that all of these and summer Fridays has is like, they're all led by incredible founders. And I think that's where you have to start. And I'm sure a bunch of your listeners are thinking about starting companies. And I think the first, first things first, okay, like you're going to do well at something that you're good at. I'm not interested in investing in a found, I'm not as interested, you know, there's all, there's always exceptions as interested as investing in somebody who sees a white space, doesn't have any passion towards it. It's just like, I can make money here and does that. You know this better than anyone. Entrepreneurship is really hard there are ups and downs and the downs are hard. It's hard to get through those if, if all you're in it for is the white space and the money. So being passionate about what you're doing, having a calling to it, I think is the most important thing and the thing that we look for at Imaginary. And I think you've got to be passionate. You are your biggest advocate. You know, how are you changing the industry? How is your product different? Be enthusiastic. Be obsessed with sharing. You know, I've talked to so many founders and you're great at this. Like when we were, uh, we were talking about the soft reset and I was like, I'm obsessed. Blah, blah, blah. And you're like, let me get, you know, like uh, you need to get one. Let me get you one. When I meet a founder who isn't obsessed with the product and is it, doesn't want me to try it, that's sort of a red flag. Like you've got to be your biggest advocate. So I think it starts with finding something that is meaningful to you that you love because not everyone has to be an entrepreneur. Not everyone has to start a company. So I think that's where I would start. Let's pause for a second to talk about stress. I've always got so much going on and my mind is racing with a never-ending to-do list. This is where magnesium comes in. Magnesium supports over 300 essential functions in the human body, regulating mood, brain function, fatigue, nerve and muscle health, as well as our physical response to stress. You can incorporate it so easily into your daily routine with Mellow. It is a magnesium super blend and you can use it daily for mind, body, and mood. 
Mellow is specifically formulated to replenish your body's magnesium levels at a cellular level, simply and naturally, while regulating feelings of stress and anxiety and the physical symptoms that come along with them. As many as 75% of U.S. adults do not get the magnesium they need in a day, and magnesium deficiency can lead to issues that create more issues, including mood disorders, sleep problems, muscle cramps, and the inability to absorb essential vitamins and nutrients like vitamin D. By adding it into your daily routine, the benefits for the mind are it improves memory and brain function, for the body, facilitates nerve health, muscle health, and restful sleep, and for your mood, it regulates physical stress responses and decreases anxiety. If you want to check out Mellow, we have a special offer for my podcast audience. Go to helloned.com slash life or enter life at checkout for 15% off your first one-time order or 20% off your first subscription order plus free shipping. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash life to get 15% off your first one-time order or 20% off your first subscription order plus free shipping. Thanks. And now let's get back to the episode. How important to you is founder versus product because obviously the founder is like the leader of the business, but sometimes the founder ends up leaving and really it's like a CEO who's running the business. So is product the most important to you or is really like a split of, you know, founder led versus product? I think it it differs based on the company. That being said, I think in the early days, being a strong founder is the most important thing because sometimes it's just you. Sometimes it's you and two other people, you know, you are the company. And so I think investing in founders who are able to adapt and change and listen and grow is just invaluable. And there are people, you know, who I'll say like, I'm not sure what they're doing, but I'm investing in them. You know, I'm not sure if I fully understand this, but I'm investing in them. And so there's a level of trust that happens in the really early stages. Then, you know, that you also want a founder who understands product and you, and you trust them that they're going to make great product or that they're doing something different and you diligence that. And then I think as you get later, especially from an acquisition perspective, like you said, like founders change and a CEO comes in, et cetera, et cetera. The product becomes more and more important if we're talking about a product company. And I think acquirers are really looking at this day and age and really strong product. So if we're in beauty, like really efficacious, strong product. But I think a founder, especially in the early stages, is is, is everything. And do, does it matter to you about like co-founders versus single founder? Like, do you find that one scenario is better than the other? No, I think, again, it, it varies by investment. I think finding somebody who, I think it's always great when a founder, one, is a great hire. I think that is such an under-discussed skill about founders is like, I love a founder who's able to understand their own weaknesses and hire into them and hire people that are smarter than them and attract people to their company. I think like talent again is everything in a, in an early stage business. So finding a founder who's able to attract talent early on and convince people to leave everything they're doing and join their startup <laughs> is really special and it can change the company. And then I think, you know, look in co-founder relationships, it's always great when they're bringing something different to the table Maybe one's more of a creative and one's more in business. Maybe one has certain connections and the other one is more community building. Like I think finding co-founders who are compatible and and are never going to like be competing for CEO or, you know, challenging each other in an unproductive way 
a really good relationship, but by no means do you need to have a co-founder. Yeah. It's definitely like a marriage. So you need to know what you're getting yes. into before you like commit to it. Because it, honestly, in some ways it's like, it's even more involved than a marriage because there's so many more people involved in like business and especially once you raise money. And so I think if you are thinking about having a co-founder, like I'm so grateful for Lauren because I'm so happy we get to do this together. And we have a really great partnership. A question people ask us all the time is like, do you guys ever argue or disagree? And we're like, honestly, no, like we have the same vision for our brand. And so as long as whatever we're doing is best for Summer Fridays, we're always going to agree on whatever is best for the company. And because it's always been that way from the beginning, but you have to like, just know who the person is make sure they're trustworthy. Is this someone you want to be, you know, married to for the next however many years and really be sure. And if not being a single founder is okay. And you can always hire the other people to do the things you don't know how to do. And I was talking to a founder who I really admire. And I said, what do you spend most of your time doing? And she said, interviewing people. And she was like, I don't even get to really work on the brand that much because I'm really just like interviewing people all the time to bring them on board. And so I think definitely interviewing and wanting to like convince people to bring on board is very important. I love that so much. And I think, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's even more than a marriage sometimes, and it's sometimes longer than a marriage. And if you're a founder early on, you should be meeting everyone that joins your company because the DNA of that culture is so important. And them feeling a connection to you is really important as well. Because again, like this is their life, like this is your company and they're investing in you. And they're giving up whatever other path they might be on to say, hey, I believe in Summer Fridays. I want to be a part of this. And so them feeling a connection to you and feeling like they know you and that you're invested in their life there and then beyond is really important. And it makes people work harder. It makes people more excited about being there, which is just great for everyone involved. I agree. And how do you know or how do you keep up to date with all of the new brands that are coming out? How do you keep up to date? <laughs> I mean, for me, no. I'm on Instagram all the time. And so no, I see I see a lot on social. And then I also like check out like Women's Wear Daily and Business of Fashion. And so I see like articles that come out, but sometimes there's great new brands who aren't getting pressed because they can't afford a publicist or anything yet. And so I'm really seeing them first on social and even on TikTok. Girl, I'm doing the same exact thing, which is funny. And it's, uh, I think I, I always like latch onto things people say, and hold them and write them down. And I think actually this was in your interview with Bobby and who I love. And she said, where does like pleasure stop and work begin? Right. And I think that's one, that's what I love about investing is because I, I sometimes don't know where pleasure shops and works work begins because a lot of the exciting companies that we think about are found through, you know, like what's going on in the zeitgeist, whether it's Instagram or TikTok. And then you also beyond that make relationships with entrepreneurs. So you know, knowing, you know, an entrepreneur at one company, they are then connected to a bunch of other budding entrepreneurs. And they're like, Hey, my friend's starting a hair care line. You've got to talk to her. She's amazing. Or you're a part of these sort of little powerhouses, like a Glossier or something like that, who are budding off other exciting entrepreneurs. So you get connected that way. And then also through the venture community, it's a really small community. And so we're always sharing deal flow the early stage stuff. So it sort of comes in a variety of ways, but I would say like the most enticing things honestly are like, you know, founders that going back to like investing in founders. So investing in talent and sort of whatever ideas they're sort of coming up with and then being a little more thesis driven and thinking about like what's going on in beauty and being obsessed with that. And so really following that on social or on TikTok 
and seeing what's new there. So it actually is, it's a multitude of ways, but a lot of it is, is discovery organically, especially at the early stages. What makes a brand stand out to you? I mean, I know we said magic, like that magic you can't (laughs) explain. And that's really something that I feel too. Like sometimes I'll find a brand and I'm like, I just know, like I have a gut feeling that like this brand is going to do something. It's whether it's either the imagery or the branding or the formula or the founder, there's just something about it and I can't explain it, but it's like a gut feeling I have. And it's the same like feeling that I bring uh, when Lauren and I are working on things for summer Fridays, like sometimes we're just like, we just know this color or this thing is going to be it. And I can't explain to you why, but I just know. Totally. I, I, I think there's, there's definitely just part of that, right? There is always going to be that, but I think then there are, I sort of think about things in three categories and this is rough and they run together, but I, I think probably most of your listeners are, are thinking about like branded products. So we'll focus there. I think about like, is this really disrupting on brand? right? Like, are they like product is there and, and all of that stuff, but like, but they're really thinking about brand differently. And then I think product and I think, oh, they're, they're creating a hit product brand is there, but like, they're like an outdoor voices legging or an Albert shoe. Like it's really iconic. And like the product is what you're focused on. And then I think about community. And so I'm like, oh, they're building this around community. So think of more of like a glossier, like the brand is amazing. The product is amazing, but like the community is like everything. And so I think you you want all three, but I sort of think of like, are they, are they disrupting in any of these sort of categories? And then from there, you know, all the things we talked about, but then like, how big is your market? What are your unit economics? Like, how do you get customers to come back? Does the business model make sense? I think at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, like, how do you make money? right? It weren't, I cer- this is like a harsh, this is a harsh thing to say, but like, this isn't a charity, right? So like, how do you, you have to ask yourself, like, how am I making money? And then as a venture, like, how are they returning money? So it needs to be a strong business model with, you know, you can't, you know, you can't sell a dollar for 50 cents. You need to have a way to long-term make money. Exactly. And then how involved do you guys typically like to be? Or is it really up to like what the brand's needs are? I think it's, I think I love to let the entrepreneur dictate some of that relationship. We as imaginary and myself, I'm here to be as helpful as possible. So I can be as involved as you want me to be. And then I can be, you know, less involved if you're, you know, later stage down the road. I think going back to the marriage comment, an investor is also a marriage in a lot of ways. And I think an underlooked about like relationship is like the last thing I want to do is be annoying. You know, the last thing I want to do is for you to have that weekly or monthly call with me and be like, Oh, I have to get on the phone with Kelly. (laughs) I want you to be excited about getting on the phone with me. I want you to be like, Oh, I need, I need help. I've got this big hire. I need to make, I need her to talk to her or I've got this business issue, the supply chain issue. I, I want to talk to her about it. Or, you know, I want you to talk to me about your boyfriend. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, I want you to feel excited that you get to talk to me and that it's a helpful call because if it's not, I've got other things to do and you've got other things (laughs) to do and you've got a business to run. And so there's no need for me to take up your time with something that's not helpful. I don't want to be emailing you every week for metrics that you don't have. This should be a really beautiful relationship where I'm building you up and being helpful to you. You're the star. The entrepreneur is the the one with all the great ideas. And I'm here to just be helpful. 
for a brand who's wanting to go through this, this, what does the process look like? Yes. So first is create for yourself, like a business plan, right? Like be really succinct about what you're, what you want to do and what you want to build. So you need to, you know, in order to go out to investors, unless you're getting a lot of warm intros and you, you know, are super popular and I've started companies in the past, a lot of times you need to put together materials. So be it a pitch deck and that pitch deck is going to say like, here's who I am. Here's my background. And this is what I want to do. This is why I want to do it. This is how big the market is. These are my unit economics. This is the problem I'm solving and sort of directing the narrative on why, you know, I should give a dollar to you and not a dollar to my scrunchiness. And so I think being really succinct and direct in those materials is really helpful and sort of getting in front of the narrative, right? Like maybe this might be a little off topic, but I always am startled by entrepreneurs who who don't talk about the competitive landscape or, you know, they want to start a millennial pink skincare brand and they don't mention Glossier at all. And it's not to say that, you know, like you can't do that. Like, it's just like, well, then I'm going to ask about it and you're going to have to then, you know, be on the defense instead of being on the offense and being like, okay, I know your next question. What about Glossier? And then from there, Glossier is an amazing company. Here are the reasons that we're different. Not being like, this company sucks, we're better. That's not what you want to do. You want to talk about why you're better and why you're needed and why you're going to be super successful and why you're going to be, you know, you're going to do $100 million in, you know, five years. You want to do all those things without having to like break other people down because that's a hard hill to climb. When people are hating on Amazon, I'm like, "Mm, you know, Amazon's doing pretty well. You might be doing things differently. And you might you know, want to play well with others. You might want to play differently than Amazon's playing. But to say that Amazon's not a great company is just like false. So I think trying not to be defensive and being just really excited about what you're doing and going back to sort of the first thing we talked about, being your own biggest advocate, being passionate, being obsessed with sharing, being you know excited to like send the product and like get people to try it. You've got to be your own biggest advocate. After the pitch deck process, what what are the like the next steps after that? Obviously, the best way to to meet venture investors is through like a network of people. So if you know someone who knows someone, getting a warm intro is is unfortunately really helpful. If you don't have that, there are plenty of like accelerator programs that you can apply to. And some of these will help connect you to venture investors. And then just like start trying if it's if it becomes like tedious in terms of trying to connect with people that you're not able to connect with, like figure out a way to start your company. I know this is this is too challenging, but like tr- like going back to what we said before, like what if you can't get venture money? That's not a forever thing. That's a temporary thing. So then figure out a way. Okay, how can I do this on a shoestring budget? How can I how can I show product market fit? How can I make a big splash? like on social or something like that, create a brand for myself. How can I do some of the job before the job actually starts? You know, like once you're doing, once you've got momentum, everyone's going to want to talk to you. It's the beginning that's really hard. You know, if you're going through this process and you're really not able to connect with anyone, I think you've got to take a step back and be like, okay, maybe the path isn't venture initially. Maybe I need to try to do this on my own and then go for venture. 
that makes sense. And then at what point do you think brands should start reaching out? Because what I think you don't want to do too is present yourself and have that one shot where you get an intro and you're not ready. Whether your deck isn't looking right or your sales aren't where you want it to be. Do you want to make sure you've got all your like ducks in a row before you get to that point? I think you do want to have, you want to, you don't want to lie, but you do want to have your, like you said, your, your ducks in a row. Like if I ask, what do you want this to be in five years? I want you to have thought about that. And I want you to have an answer for that. Even that I'm not going to hold you to that. I'm not writing it down. And in five years being like, Hey, you said you were going to be this and you, you know, like you can pivot and change. That's actually a great quality, but another great quality is knowing what you want and being like, fighting for it because I'm, I don't want to tell you what you should be in five years. Like, you know, I want you to tell me. So I think having all your ducks in a row is really important. That being said, I think saying, you know what? I don't know. That is a great question. Let me think about that and get back to you. And then that night, email them. Like, don't not get back to them on things that you don't know. But, you know, like, being like, you know what? I want to be really thoughtful about that question. I think it's a really good question. Let me get back to you. And then emailing them and being like, hey, I've been really thinking about your question. It was a great question. Here's how I think about that. I think that's a really, that's a really cool thing to do. And, and it's okay to not know everything. But what do you do with the not knowing is what's interesting. I try not to be too prescriptive. But I would say some of the things that we look for, you know, again, strong unit economics. So really strong margins. So a strong margin gives you room to spend money on like marketing or customer acquisition. We also want to see that customers come back. So really strong retention. That means like if I paid advertise to you on Facebook, I'm, you know, I'm spending that money on Facebook to acquire you as a customer, but then I've got you for the next three years for every product launch I drop. So you're paying me back for that acquisition cost. So we love to see, you know, companies that are able to sort of create, you know, like a a collectability about them and a retention that's really strong, whether it's subscription or just like product launches and product drops. I think companies that are able to show, you know, really strong retention is something that we're always get excited about. And how important is like direct to consumer versus retail for you? I think we've always been excited about an omni-channel approach. Most of the companies we invest in are obviously digitally native, so direct-to-consumer, but they are available on other channels as well. And I think if anything, this year has shown us to not be too reliant on any one channel. And I think, again, depending on the type of product and what you're doing, sometimes you need to be where the customer is. And sometimes that customer is in Target. And sometimes that customer is in Sephora. And that's where she wants to buy you. And I think if you're not there, and she's buying something else, then I want us to be there. And so I think you have to answer that question for each individual company. But we are definitely excited about companies that take an omni-channel approach. What are some red flags for you for a reason maybe not to invest so that you know founders or brands can try to avoid these pitfalls? Yeah. Any company who's too reliant on paid marketing, right? So when they don't have sort of this like cult-like organic following where there's there's word of mouth and referrals and people are, you know, have you tried the new summer Fridays soft reset? Like that we love to see versus like spending a hundred percent of your, of your capital on paid marketing and trying to get people through that funnel because that just costs a lot of money in the long run. And then sort of, you know, on the, the other side of like what I talked about earlier, companies who might have like a hit product, but then there's no reason for that customer to ever come back. 
if you're AOV, so your average order value is high enough, it's fine. So let's say you're, um, I don't know, a car company, right? Like I'm not coming back next year to buy another car, but it's fine because I'm spending thousands of dollars on the one car so I can cover all my costs. But if you're a lipstick company and you only buy one lipstick, that's not great. You know, so companies who have a hit product, but there's no reason to come back. I think that's something that we also sort of try to avoid. That makes sense. And then what are some qualities in a founder that are important to you? You've got to be your own biggest advocate. You've got to be passionate and enthusiastic and obsessed with sharing. I love founders who are great hirers and who are great learners. So founders who know what they don't know and who are excited to absorb that information and learn while also knowing what they want. So not a founder who isn't driven or, you know, is malleable to anything. We want founders who, who want to change the world and who are really passionate about that, but who are also open to being like, okay, I was wrong on that. Um, here's what I want to do differently next time. And then the same question goes back for people looking for investors. Like what are some qualities people should look for and how do you hope that someone is trustworthy and the right person to go into business with? Totally. I think, you know, there's a lot of capital out there. So you really want to find, you know, entrepreneur friendly investors. And again, that goes back to, that's going to be different for every entrepreneur. But I think, you know, investors are great when things are going great. You're not going to meet that many investors who have invested in you and you're doing, you're killing it. They're not going to be calling you to like, you know, scold you. It's harder when things aren't going as well. And so, you know, my advice would be, you know, if you're meeting an investor and you don't know, first you, you, it's kind of that feeling again, like you should be excited about talking to them. And if that's not happening and you've got options, like maybe look somewhere else. And then I would try to talk to some of their portfolio, not just the companies that are doing great, but try to talk to some founders in their portfolio that maybe aren't doing that great and see what it was like working with imaginary during that time or, you know, how you stay connected or, you know, finding out what it's like through the ups and downs, I think is really important because it's easy when things are going well. It's a lot harder when things aren't mm-hmm. going well. I, and then you guys are great. And I haven't heard, it's not anything about you guys, but other places yeah. I've just heard like nightmare stories from my friends who have had the worst experience. And I just feel so bad for them because I think they didn't know what they were getting into. They didn't take their time to like really understand who they were going into business with. Now somebody else owns a part of your company. And so you really want to make sure you're doing your due diligence beforehand. And like you said, talk to other founders and people to really know what you're getting into. And don't, I think don't rush the process. Like I know sometimes you like really need the money, but like, it's not something you want to rush through. So just make sure you know who it is that you're bringing on board. I think you're exactly right. Like don't rush it. If it doesn't feel right, trust your, your inner knowing. And then we talked about if a company is looking to raise money and I know you said like warm intro, but if they don't have an intro to somebody, what are some of these accelerator programs or how else can they reach out to try to, you know, meet with people? We still look at the cold emails that we get at Imaginary and, you know, you might get lost and you might have to follow up a bunch of times. You've got to keep going and you've got to, you know, connect with people on LinkedIn and ask to, you know, can you have five minutes of somebody's time or not five, actually don't even ask for five minutes of their time, like put together the pitch deck that of your dreams and be like, you know, if, if this sparks any interest in you, I would love to then take five minutes of your time, you know, like 
do everything that you can do without having to take anything from anyone else and then go from there. I think, you know, I've reached out to plenty of entrepreneurs on LinkedIn and I, you know, plenty of people have reached out to me. So I think, you know, do all the work that you can to put yourself in a position to make it easy, to make it hard for somebody to be like, I don't want to know anything about this. That's a great piece of advice and so (laughs) helpful. Thank you so much. I feel like even though I knew a lot, I feel like I even learned a lot today. And so I think this is really great. And I hope all the people with companies or aspiring entrepreneurs learned a little bit more um, in our episode today. I hope so too. And it was such a pleasure to talk to you as always. You know, I'm a huge fan of yours and and I love what you're doing here on this podcast. I'm a, I'm a listener and I've learned a lot and been excited about the guests you've had on. So I hope we get to talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to subscribe to my podcast and rate and review because it would mean so much to me and follow me on Instagram at Mariana underscore Hewitt to see what episodes are coming up next.